the State of Florida Sports Podcast, presented by the USA Today Network. Here's your host, Tim Walters. It's no secret that for the last 50 years or so, Florida's population has exploded, causing all sorts of challenges for our eco-diverse state. Perhaps the biggest impact has been to our waterways, polluted by overdevelopment and lack of leadership to fight those who have no interest in keeping our state pristine. Pioneers like Marjorie Stoneman Douglas saw a hundred years ago that places like the Everglades were important not just to Florida, but to the entire world. While her spirit lives on, it can sometimes seem hopeless as you see algae blooms, fish kills, seagrass die-offs, manatee deaths, and more. Well, there's a glimmer of hope for those who still care about our environment in the form of the Florida Right to Clean Water Petition, an initiative to amend Florida's constitution by the voters in November 2024. It will essentially create a fundamental right to clean and healthy waters, clarifies prohibited actions and inactions that harm or threaten to harm waters, and defines important terms. How? To answer that question and many more you might have, I welcome back Ed Killer, outdoors reporter for the Treasure Coast Newspapers and TCPalm.com. Ed has been covering Florida's environment for more than 30 years, and he knows as well as anyone what needs to be done to help preserve what still remains of Florida's once great biodiverse environment. Aside from that, Ed will also discuss the recently begun Goliath grouper season, algae blooms showing up in lakes around Florida, seagrass, and much more. Hello again, everybody. I'm Tim Walters, and thank you once again for joining me on the State of Florida Sports Podcast, powered by the USA Today Network. This podcast utilizes our Florida sports network of beat writers, columnists, and some special guests to bring you up to speed on the most important sports topics. Our Florida network consists of 17 news sites that encompass the state. We encourage you to subscribe to your hometown newspaper and, of course, this podcast to help support the incredible journalism done by our talented staffs. We have environmental questions, and Ed Killer has the answers. So let's get him in here right now. Ed, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Th- thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, no problem. So let's start with what I was just talking about in the intro, and that's the Florida Right to Clean Water Petition. What is it, and what exactly does it propose to do? Well, let me first start off by saying uh, I'm not really a big uh, petition signer. So when when petitions come around, I get a little, I kind of look at them with a critical eye. And um, but when I when I learn more about this movement, um, it it really struck me to you know sign this this petition and to try to convince as many other people to sign it because it's, um, it's something that we all need desperately in Florida. Um, the, the bulk of it is, um, it's, it's a petition to get a movement onto the 2024 ballot in for Florida to, um, create a right to clean water. And, um, the reason for that is, is that for years we've asked our state legislators, we've asked our governors, we've asked our agencies that are in the executive branch of government, like the Department of Environmental Protection, uh, the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Uh, we've asked these these agencies and these lawmakers to create laws and to enforce the laws that are on the books to uh, to create smart development choices and to protect wetlands and protect our lakes and ponds, canals, rivers, and uh, coastal estuaries. 
and to protect them from getting fouled by things like harmful algae blooms because of nutrient buildup in these in these waterways uh, to keep them from uh, other kinds of problems we're seeing like you know like red tides which although they may be natural man-made activity certainly uh, exacerbates uh, the severity of the red tides you know but these we've got these these uh, blue green algae blooms in the space coast area we have brown tides of these you know plankton that, that bloom so much that they they shade the seagrass so um it seems like our lawmakers don't listen to us when it comes to environmental issues and we know that special interests in Tallahassee really have control over what laws are made and how those laws are, are, are written and how they're enforced. And since Rick Scott was in office, we've had um, a, a, almost a powerless Devar Department of, of Environmental Protection. And there's some things when it comes to managing our waterways where, uh, where the DEP is supposed to handle something and they're supposed to work with FDACs but there seems to be a communication problem between the two agencies. So not only are polluters not being, not being fined, they're not being, these laws aren't being enforced. So these people are, are just allowed to slowly, you know, kill Florida, Florida's waterways by a, like a death of a thousand cuts. We don't have one giant polluter who's causing all the problems. What we have is we have thousands and thousands of small small polluters, everything from farms to urban runoff to you name it, that just create problems for our waters. And we're not really, uh, we're not doing a good job of it. So this will, this petition will get the movement on the ballot so that we can actually vote for it during the 2024 election coming up. So this is essentially going to hold accountable those officials that number one, haven't listened but number two, haven't really done anything, even if they when they run for office, everybody says, oh, well, we're going to save the environment. And then they don't do it. And, you know, even the first year of, of Governor DeSantis's tenure, it seemed like he was going to do something and he got rid of a bunch of these officials. And where is that gone? Because it seemed like he was dedicated at first and then it kind of disappeared. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to set aside uh, the criticism for Governor DeSantis for now. You know, in his first term, he he pledged about two and a half billion dollars of state money and state effort towards cleaning up our waterways and and Everglades restoration. Uh, just recently, after he was elected, he just made an announcement of another three and a half billion dollars that he's committing over the next four years to different waterways in Florida and to the Everglades restoration. And he actually has language in in this pledge to ask lawmakers to take it, take the suggestions of people like the blue green algae task force which is made up of of five or six scientists from you know uh, respected institutions in Florida who have given these great suggestions on what to do about to 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 keep our to make our waterways cleaner but those suggestions just were not followed up on so the governor's talking the right talk he's saying the right things and he's pledging the right amounts of money and he's 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 actually doing things to help but it seems like there's this varying levels of 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 who follows up on what that come in under un, uh, um, under him or under his guidance you know he he did uh change some people on like the south florida water manager district's governing board to make sure that there weren't uh you know special interests that were 
um, in charge of agriculture, you know, to, you know, to make sure that um, our waterways were getting cleaner, you know, but once he, if he goes, runs for office for president um, and moves on, or if he, you know, is when his term expires, because um, we have a two term limits and, you know, for, for governors in Florida, um, who knows what the next governor is going to do or who he's going to appoint to these boards. So we only have a limited amount of time to have the same, to, to have the control uh, of the environment that, that, uh, that he's put in place. But the lawmakers aren't following up on it. And the one thing DeSantis didn't do that he could have done, he could have restored some of the positions that were in the Departmental, Department of Environmental Protection that were, were removed in, 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 in back in 2010 when Rick Scott was governor for the first time. You know, DeSantis could have replaced those guys and he could have put those lawyers back in place and put the law enforcement um, back in place to, to make sure that the, the, agri- the agricultural and urban polluters were being held accountable for some of the pollution of Florida's waters, but he didn't do that. So, you know, he says one thing and then he does something a little different. So you got to kind of watch carefully where that goes when it comes to the, with the governor, but the slate legislature every year, they, they, they have five or six bills. They're going to make it harder for counties and cities to govern themselves when it comes to protecting wetlands and protecting other other uh, natural areas, they they've they've got laws in place to erode that ability for local governments to do that. They've they uh, are got laws in place to make it easier for developers to develop more widely and without with less regulation. Um, and so these are the things these are the bills that get snuck through, or get, you know are tried to be snuck through each session. And there's several in place right now. In fact, um, Gil Smart, the executive director from Vote Water. Called, he nicknamed this legislative session. He called it the session of sprawl because that's how many you know pieces of legislation are are being proposed to allow developers to do what they want and to take the rights away from you know environmentalists and people that n- depend on clean water that for their businesses and their livelihoods. Well, yeah, I, I certainly didn't mean for it to be a, a criticism on Governor DeSantis. It just seemed like when he came into office, he was much more vocal about the environment. But yeah, you point out that he's definitely pledging the right money, and he's definitely friendlier to the environment than the previous governor. But, you know, with this petition, how much of a solution is this? Like, even if it gets passed, you know, how how um, how effective do you think it can be? Well, one of the main things it does, Tim, um, I think it can be effective, and I think we need to have it because otherwise they're gonna they're gonna take us take this um, right away from uh, Floridians. But um, first of all, let me start with uh, what it takes to get the petition signed. It it's gonna take nine hundred thousand petition signatures of um, you know registered Florida voters to get on the Florida ballot in twenty twenty four. Once it's on the ballot. If it, if it makes it on the ballot and once it's on the ballot, it's no doubt in my mind that Florida voters will approve it. Florida voters have a history of uh, whenever um, issues come up to protect Florida waters, they have a, have a history of voting at, at more than 70 percent approval rates for other previous legislation that's similar to this. that's already been, been come through the system. Um, but the one thing it will do is it will allow Floridians to sue when government agencies like the DEP or um, like planning agencies or like county commissions, if they don't follow the rules and they don't, they don't protect wetlands and stuff like that, this will allow Floridians the right to sue to stop it. 
Um, right now, we don't have that ability to do that it's through some of these government agencies uh, to stop them from from not from not following the rules. So um, that's one thing. It's this 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 uh, will allow us to do. That's one reason why we got to sign it. Yeah, and where can people go to sign this, Ed? Well, probably the best place is to you know go through go go through Google search and look up Florida Right to Clean Water. Um, it's a dedicated web page. It comes up. It's very well organized. It has a, a lot of background information from all kinds of different sources about uh, what what you need to know and why it's going to be an effective piece of legislation once it gets on the ballot. And that's that's got a place right there where you can download it um, and then s- sign it and then mail it in to a, an address at Fort Myers. Um, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is um, as you go about and like different you know participate in different events that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. You know, if you're going to a fair, if you're going to an art show, if you're going to a, um, you know, you know, some kind of a you know cleanup, look for look for members of this organization there with petitions to sign, and it just takes one second to sign it and you know, fill out your voter registration number. That way, it makes sure that they don't discount your ballot, your uh, petition, um, and and that's a, that's one of the easiest ways to do it. Is you you'll be able to find them at different events as 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 we go on the next few weeks. Yeah, it makes me curious, Ed, because every time you go to vote for an amendment, you know, you look at your ballot and the wording is definitely filled with lawyer speak and it's confusing and you don't even know if you should vote yes or no, even though you clearly want something like this to pass. Hopefully, do you think they'll keep the wording simple enough to where people can just say, yes, I want this? Because, you know, sometimes they'd rather you say no when you actually do want it. So, you know, let's hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I mean, we've had that certainly happen with some amendments for solar power recently and uh, for uh, passenger rail service before that, you know, and where where it's it sounds like if you're voting yes on it, it's actually a no vote. Or if you're voting no for it, it's actually a yes vote because they put double negatives in the wording. They're not going to do that with this. This, this is the straightforward, you know, straight shooting, easy you know, language uh, to understand. So I'm sure that when it's on the ballot, people are going to be able to understand its intent very easily and hopefully support it. I sure hope so. I need things simple, Ed. I, I just need it to be, do you want this? Yes or no? <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to some other topics now. And again, you know, look for the Florida uh, clean water petition. And, uh, you know, let's try and get that on the ballot next year and get our waters clean because I remember, you know, Ed, your family's been in Florida forever, literally since the 1800s. And my family came to Florida in 1981. And, you know, my grandfather used to go fishing in the canals. And, you know, we could just sink a a crab trap off of our canal, you know, dock, and you could catch, you know, 20 crabs. And, you know, obviously those things are a thing of the past. So let's at least try and work toward getting our water cleaned up and making things better for all the people here in Florida. The next thing I want to ask you about, and this has been in the news recently, and there was just a news story today as it nears Florida's coasts, is this 5,000-mile-long sargassum weed string that, that floated over, you know, basically from uh, the direction of Africa toward Florida and Mexico entering the Gulf. And, you know, th- this stuff is thick. It- it's going to be on our beaches. So can you talk about where this stuff is, what it is, and why this seems to happen every year? Yeah, one thing about um, these sargassum mats is there's there's good and bad in, in them. So let's 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 talk about where it is and 
I know that there's a big lump of it in the Gulf of Mexico and there's a big lump of it in the Atlantic. And I know that the last several years, every single year, it seems like it gets a little worse. We see this as a problem on beaches from uh, the Virgin Islands to Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic to uh, Mexico, uh, the Northern Gulf, all all across Florida, both sides of Florida, but mostly on the on the East Coast of Florida and Atlantic Coast. Uh, we've seen you know problem in the Bahamas and the Bermuda area, and uh, it's sargassum seaweed is is what the culprit is. And it sounds like it's a huge blob out there. One of the things that's exacerbating the problem is that that uh, this type of seaweed is actually uh, it's a type of algae. Algae needs two things to grow. It needs uh, lots and lots of sunlight and it needs nutrients. And what's happened in our waters over the, you know, increasingly over the last 20 years is our nutrient levels keep going up because Basically, you know, the the pollution that we create with nitrogen and phosphorus, everything from um, our own waste to uh, other types of problems of, you know, you know, from, you know, farming practices and, you know, mining practices, some other stuff. We create this byproduct that ends up in our rivers and then our rivers carry it to the sea and down to the Gulf of Mexico and down to the Atlantic Ocean. So. Um, these are problems that are going on worldwide. And as these nutrients enter the ocean, it creates this great environment for things like these algaes to really grow. The other thing we're seeing a lot of is we're seeing this intensified sunlight. I mean, you remember how hot January and February were. You know, we had a couple cold fronts, but in between that, we, had, we were experiencing record heat. And I think it was because we just had these bright, sunny days, and that was what was happening out on the ocean. We weren't having rains, and it just created perfect conditions for this algae to really grow and expand. So that's one of the problems we see with it. The good news about it is it's as it's on the surface of the water there, it creates like a floating habitat for small juvenile fishes and other marine life. So you get things like crabs and crustaceans and shrimps and all kinds of stuff and little fishes that live in this habitat as it's floating around in the ocean they're living in this and they're living their whole lives in it as they get grow and grow to get bigger and of course as there are more of those animals out there that's creating a food source for larger predators so it's not uncommon for for fishermen to think of sargassum for uh, blue water offshore fishermen to think of sargassum as a good thing because for years what they would do is as they would troll along these edges of sargassum, these big mats that might be a couple acres in size, as they would troll along them in maybe 200, 300 feet of water, they would find things like mahi-mahi, they would find triple tail, they would find wahoos, uh, blackfin tuna, and a lot of times these these larger predators would be swimming around this, these sargasso mats because they would be picking off the smaller creatures that are living in, in it. So, um, that's one of the good things about it. The bad thing is, is once it gets to the shoreline, of course, now you got a problem. So now you got a problem for beachgoers, beach walkers, beach runners. You got a problem for surf fishermen. You know, people who like to catch pompano and whiting and they cast from the from the shore of the beach out into the ocean. If you've got all those sar, all that sargassum weed coming in, like heavy amounts of it, you got a problem where you can't you can't cast a line because the, the See, the sargasso fouls up your lines. Um, you can't, um, you have a, you're, you have a hard time 
swimming in it. You have a hard time surfing in it. You have a hard time doing anything, you know, close to the shoreline. So uh, it, it be, it's that, that's one reason why it's a story is because it's going to create a problem for all of those people and all those businesses that like to do those activities along the shoreline of Florida for the next several months if it comes in. And then the third problem that happens is as it starts to break down and rot and become you know, these big mats on the shoreline, as they start to decompose, it, part of the natural process of this algae dying, it's a macro algae, as it dies, it releases hydrogen sulfide. And so as you get near the coastline or as you get near the beach, you're, you'll notice, you're like, why are my eyes burning and why does it smell really bad? Well, that's the natural gases that are created by the the, the seagrass or by the uh, sargassum weed actually rotting. And um, so that takes, if there's laying there for a week or two, it starts to break down. And as that happens, sometimes it can be so strong. Like I've smelled it so bad at places like Fort Pierce Inlet uh, Park there where it comes in and just gathers there for weeks. And you can have enough mass of it where you cannot go out on the Fort Pierce jetty because it's just the smell just kills you the whole time you're out there. So um, it, it's pretty it's pretty severe when it gets to that point. So um, so that's something to be you know keep a watchful out uh, eye out for. It's another one of those things, Tim, that um, you know everybody complains about it, but nobody does anything about it. It's kind of like the weather. <laughs> so <laughs> so we're gonna have to we're gonna be stuck with it, and we're gonna have to live with it, and it's gonna be a problem. Yeah, it's always tough for people like me too who have asthma because that stuff, you know, like a red tide and other various things that come from the ocean, makes me cough and wheeze and have trouble with things like that. But you know, this might be, and pardon my ignorance for this question because I I just don't know a lot about this this stuff in the ocean. But so when it's coming across the ocean toward Florida and Mexico and these coasts and it's forming and, and all of this stuff is happening on the surface, was this one stuff that was alive at the bottom of the ocean and dies and detaches and floats up? Or does it form on the ocean surface? Like where is this stuff even coming from? You know, that's a that's a great question. Um, it, it's coming from the surface. It's actually it it grows on the surface. It doesn't detach from the bottom and float up to the surface. It actually grows on the surface. And it what it does is it just expands and expands and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And just there's no limit to to how big it can grow. Um, so um, it's it's weird. It's 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 almost like a floating plant, you know, mm. um, that doesn't have roots. So it's uh, it's and that's and because that's what qualifies it as an algae. So it, um, um, so yeah, it's a good question. It doesn't, it's not a plant that's rooted on the ground and breaking off and floating to the surface. It's, it's something that actually grows on the surface. So it's not like kelp, which is a plant. It's more like, uh, or seagrass. It's, it's, it's actually a seaweed. So it's something, it's an algae, a type of algae that grows in the water and, and ah. expands. Yep. So now I'm even smarter, Ed. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you know, the other crazy thing is, you're right, this stuff comes on shore along Florida's coast, and then it forms, you know, like these mini mountains that are six, eight, ten feet tall, and then all of a sudden, the ocean just takes it back and it goes away. Where does it go? <laughs> That's where it, it breaks down in the wave action, and it, and as, it's, as it rots on the shoreline, when the higher tides come in, it'll take more of it back out, and it... it it breaks down and becomes part of the natural system in the waterway it becomes a, a nutrient, which, you know, inevitably can help feed the next algae bloom. But also there's other organisms like planktons and other types of organisms that actually 
uh, are designed to eat that kind of stuff. So it's it, it becomes part of the part of the part of the food chain, part of the food supply. Ah, so there you go. It might be a little inconvenience for your spring break, but it'll be gone in a few weeks, and hopefully by summer you won't have to worry about it. All right, we'll move on to the next topic, Ed. And the thing I wanted to ask you about next is the Goliath grouper season. And uh, some restrictions were removed uh, last year on that. And you explained that on this podcast. And, you know, the, the season opened March 1st and it goes through May 31st. So what should people know in 2023 about the Goliath grouper season? Well, just I guess the first thing that people need to know is if you hear about Goliath grouper season being open, it doesn't mean it's open for everybody. So the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, which is the state agency that, that manages our, our you know, natural resources, including all our fish, um, they made a, a new regulation last year to open a limited season from May, March 1st through May 31st to harvest only 200 Goliath grouper. So they're only going to allow the taking of 200 of them. And the way they're doing that is through a specially assigned permit. So if you don't have a permit, you can't harvest one, number one. So if you are part of the 200 that did receive a permit, you can take one. And that's that's the limit. And you've got a limited place on where you can catch them, too. So, for instance, the waters from the Martin-St. Lucie County line on the Atlantic coast of Florida all the way down to the Keys, are that's a protected area where you can, you're not allowed to harvest any Goliath grouper in that zone. And that includes all the waters of the St. Lucie River, which connect in Martin County there, connected the Indian River Lagoon and the in the Atlantic Ocean in Martin County. So that's completely off limits. Um, you are allowed to harvest one from you know in 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 Collier County, Lee County, Sarasota, uh, Charlotte County, all those counties over there, you know Hillsborough. But of course, one of the problems that's going on that the FWC did not anticipate is this terrible red tide that's going on throughout the whole area all the way from all the way up to Pinellas County um, on the coast right now. So that's actually killing some of these Goliath grouper that are in the size range. The, the, the third part of the of the process is, like I said, we got a limited harvest and we got a permitted process. The next thing they do is they also limited the size. So you're only allowed to, to harvest one between 24 and 36 inches, no larger than 36 inches long and no shorter than 24 inches long. So that kind of reduces the size, the, uh, that means the size of the animal that you can harvest is going to be up to maybe that 15 to 20 pound uh, Goliath grouper. Um, these this species of fish can grow up to 400 pounds. In fact, the state record in Florida is like 680 pounds or something. And that was caught in the 60s off of Fernandina Beach. But mostly Goliath grouper, even though it's kind of farther north in Florida, Goliath grouper are a tropical species that uh, you don't catch outside of Florida, really. It's kind of like snook, kind of like, uh, you know, sawfish, manatees. You know, these are all things that are special to Florida. Um, Goliath grouper are one of those. One of the things about Goliath grouper was anglers and dive spear fishermen would complain that when they would fish our near shore reefs and wrecks off of the Atlantic coast of Florida, especially sometimes the Gulf coast, but in the Atlantic coast, especially when they would hook a fish like a snook or a snapper and be trying to reel it to the surface in 60 feet of water from a reef, what would happen is a Goliath grouper, sometimes a shark would take your catch, 
But oftentimes it'd be a Goliath grouper that would come up. And just before you're about to reel the fish out of the water, the Goliath grouper grabs your snapper and there goes your snapper. Um, divers have claimed that they've had Goliath grouper take lobster, which is something that they, they dive for and they, they highly prize uh, catch. Um, researchers say that Goliath grouper do not eat snapper and lobster on their own, but it's only like an opportunistic feeding opportunity when they grab one. Um, so there's a difference of opinion between what fishermen and divers, spear fishermen have seen and what researchers and recreational um, passive divers who uh, like to watch Goliath groupers in their natural habitat between what they say. So there's this difference of opinion between what goes on there. So as a result, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission decided the heck with it. We're just going to outlaw the catch of any any large ones. And then we're also going to shut down this entire zone of, you know, about one fourth of the state of Florida to no harvest at all in that whole area to protect these large fish that recreational divers like to go down and, and observe in their natural habitats, especially uh, during the fall when they're known to spawn from like August, September, October uh, on some of these reefs off of Jupiter and Palm Beach and, you know, down to Boynton and Boca. Um, so that's, that's where that stands right now. So there's, there was about 11, I think there was seven, I'm, I'm sorry. I think there was 1700 applicants for permits for the fish, um, at a hundred and they, they had to, they had to spend a, um, a non-refundable, I think it was a $10 fee. And then the ones who did get the permit had to spend $150 on the permit. And so out of 1700 applicants, there were 200 people who got the permit. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. There's a lot of um, post-harvest um, requirements for the permit holder. They have to uh, take the carcass to a FWRI research facility. Uh, there, the scientists are going to be able to take the age data of the fish and other kind of information, like they're going to see what's in his gut. They're going to see um, you know, if there's any mercury in his flesh, that kind of stuff. So they're going to be able to do some testing on the fish to see how, how healthy, how healthy they are. And uh, then we'll, you know, we'll see what happens after that. All right. Well, you know, another uh, big topic that's been going down, especially in your area down there on, along the treasure coast is, uh, you know, the, the seagrass die offs. And we've had recent discharges from Lake Okeechobee and, you know, things just aren't getting any better. So where, where would you put the health of seagrass right now, and how are things down there in Stewart, Fort Pierce, Port St. Lucie, those areas? You know, uh, that's a great question. I, I, just, I just attended a couple talks from researchers on seagrass in, in the Indian River Lagoon, for instance. And there, the, the graphs are, are, are just, they're, they're terrible, and they tell a, they tell a sad tale. We've had a seagrass die-off that's been going on since 2011, and there was a, an initial die-off in the whole Indian River Lagoon, especially on the Space Coast, um, with a, a lesser one on the Treasure Coast. Then things got better for a few years, and then all of a sudden, about 2016, it just plummeted downwards again. And we've just had this area where these there's places with which has historically have produced or have historically had large seagrass meadows and they just haven't come back. They've just been gone for like six years now. And, um, it's really worrisome for, for many people, many researchers for, for a number of reasons. One is 
that the type there, there's seven seagrasses that grow in the Indian River Lagoon, seven species of seagrass. And these are, and this is different than the sargassum weed, okay? This is seagrass that actually is rooted in the soil and grows up in the water column. And it creates habitat for lots of juvenile fishes. This, by the way, different fishes than you see in the sargassum weed offshore. These are different fishes that live inshore in our in our estuaries around the coastal edges of Florida. Um, however, in a place where you've had a species like, um, and I'm going to get this wrong, I always get it wrong, but I think it's turtle grass. Turtle grass is a species of seagrass that's a, got a, a, a fairly wide blade and a fairly long blade. And I think we used to have turtle grass on this flat, is on a grass flat on on the north side of Boy Scout Island in in Martin County, which is south of the Stewart Causeway. It's the first island you come to on the intercoastal waterway. It's a little tiny island, and we always nicknamed it Boy Scout Island. But on the northeast side of that, there was about a 500-acre flat of this turtle grass up until 2004 that was just pristine. And it, it was so thick, like as you waded through it, you could feel it tickling. It was, I mean, it was, it would come up to my knees. I'm a pretty, pretty tall guy. And, you know, it would come up, you know, three feet off the bottom. That's how good this habitat was there. And when you, if you took a seine net through there, you would find things like you would find hogfish, ju- juvenile hogfish that, you know, live offshore when they're adults on the reefs, but they live inshore during the, the early part of their lives. You know, in, juvenile Goliath grouper, like we were just talking about juvenile gag grouper which is a species that, that floridians love to catch and eat that lives offshore as an adult but it would live inshore as as a juvenile um there is since the hurricanes of 04 francis and gene that created the first problem in wiping out the seagrass but that's not normally a problem because seagrasses grow in hurricane areas so you know if a hurricane damages a seagrass bed well, the natural process is for that, that grass to come back. However, that area is also impacted by the Lake Okeechobee discharges. And so the rains that fell from Francis and Jean in the Kissimmee River Valley area eventually flowed downstream into Lake Okeechobee. And then in 0405, they had literally about an 11 month period of discharges where dark brown water came out over those flats and stayed there for months, months at a time, which prevented sunlight from reaching the bottom. I mean, it's fairly shallow water. It's only about three, four feet deep, but that sh- that shading of sunlight prevented the, the, the regrowth of all that seagrass. So it turned it into like a desert. Now, if you go out there, you can find some seagrass, but it's a different species. It's, it's one of the species that has a very fine uh, leaf. It's a very short leaf. And you'll find some of that around, but that does not create the type of habitat that the turtle grass does. So one of the problems we have is the wrong kind of seagrass is growing back in some places that where a different one used to live. And in other places where it's been removed, you, you don't have the regrowth of it. Um, one of the things the researchers were talking about, and I'll, I'll wrap this up in a second. I know this is more about seagrass than anybody wants to hear, but <laughs> um, anyway, they don't they don't produce seed. So like we we're used to plants on above ground. We're used to them seeing them. They they have seeds and flowers, and the fat flowers turn to seeds, and that's that keeps the plant going. But the most of your seagrasses 
they reproduce based on rhizomes. That's when you have those roots that go through the soil and, and then the seagrass sprouts up from the root. Well, that doesn't happen. That, that it, once the seagrass dies off, that rhizome isn't there anymore. There's nothing, there's nothing for the seagrass to come from. So you've got this situation where you've got, you've literally taken the substrate where the seagrass used to grow down to zero plants and the plants can't grow. It's like the chicken before the egg. You can't, you can't have a chicken without an egg, but you can't have an egg without a chicken. That's what you're dealing with with the seagrass in the Indian River Lagoon right now. And by the way, it's not just the Indian River Lagoon. Sarasota Bay, there was a, one of our environmental reporters, um, and Ann Snaves just did a story about Sarasota Bay has lost 25% of its seagrass in the last, you know, last few months. Um, a, a former colleague of ours, Max Chesnitz, who works for the Tampa Bay Times, he just did a story about how, Hill, how um, Tampa Bay has lost 21% of its seagrass in the last five years. So we're seeing this seagrass die-off happen in a lot of places, not just the Indian River Lagoon. It's happening all over Florida. And it's really becoming a problem because if the habitat for the small fish is, is gone, then where are they going to live and where are they going to grow up? And, and if they don't, I mean, it doesn't take much for a predator to find them and eat them after that. So you're going to have a collapse in fisheries. And you know, in, in, in we've already saw the collapse from manatees. We're going to see these constant um, you know, organ, organism collapses as we go as we go through the next few years. It's, it's kind of a scary thing to think about, really. Yeah, you know, I can remember going out with researchers. I think it was in 2014 when I was working on a, a documentary with Jim Wehmer, the environmental reporter at Florida Today. And, you know, they were actually trying to replant some seagrass down in the Melbourne Palm Bay area, the Indian River Lagoon. And they actually had to like fence it off. They had to put underwater fencing because what little was actually growing, the manatees would come in and eat it right away because there was no other seagrass around. So it's just a, a terrible situation. But it also brings it full circle, Ed. Could, you know, the clean water petition help some of this and, and help, you know, stop some of these things, discharges and other things to help some of the seagrass grow back? Well, that's the idea is that, uh, you know, is that you, it all, the seagrass researchers keep pointing back to the one problem. The problem really is the, the, the water isn't clean. And for everywhere where you've got uh, problems with the water, you've got problems with the seagrass. So that's, you know, the seagrass is dependent on clean water first and foremost. And if you don't have the clean water, you're not going to have a, a chance for the seagrass to grow back. Even if you start the seagrass on the land and transplant it into the water, if you've got dirty water, then what are you actually doing? You're just wasting your time, really. You're planting seagrasses into an, an environment where they're going to die anyway. So it's a, it's a real problem. All right. Well, before I let you out of here, Ed, the, you know, I usually can't let you go without asking you something non-environmental related. And I know you're a big baseball fan. You're down there in Port, or near Port St. Lucie where the Mets are spring training. We've had some crazy things happening with these new baseball rules. So, you know, uh, have you been out to any games? What do you think of some of these rules? And are you waiting for a World Series game to end on a balk because somebody didn't make their pitch clock? You know, I'm... I'm okay. I'm totally okay with that. If you if 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 we have a, a game end because of something like that, I, I'm I'm okay. I'm all right with it. It goes in the record books, you know. <laughs> That's all right. The, I like the pitch clock. I think the pitch clock is great. What it's done is, and without really saying it this way, what 
what you've lost is, especially like baseball purists, they're always like, oh, you're taking it away. It's ruining, you know, we're having less baseball. No, you're not having less baseball. What you're having is less standing around and less, you know, you know scratching yourself and less, uh, you know, less, you know, the batters, he's not messing with his batting gloves for five minutes before he you know, gets ready to get back in the box and take a swing. You know, we're, we're losing the, um, it sped the games up. So it's more like a two and a half hour long game instead of a three hour game, um, and you've lost that uh, that 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 part of the game where nobody's doing anything, where the ball's in the pitcher's glove, the batter's messing around with something at the batter box, and you know we're all waiting for this for for things to start up here. You know that's all we're missing. Um, I don't mind the bigger bases. Uh, they've shown some stats here on recently on spring training uh, on MLB Network where um, there's been more stolen base attempts. Uh, the the runs are maybe right about the same runs per game, um, but people are you know baseball teams are actually stealing bases again because there's no shift, and you've got players have to cover a certain area of the of the of the of the field. Um, hitters are once again they're sneaking through with those base hits again. You know, it's not all based on just hit a home run or, or lose. Uh, now you you can actually move runners from base to base, and you can actually get base hits uh, because there isn't there aren't two players on the one side of the field where you normally would hit the ball. So um, so I like it. I think it's a good. I think these are all good changes. Uh, I don't I, I don't have a problem with if if a batter doesn't follow the rules and he gets penalized, that's his problem. If a pitcher doesn't follow the rules and he gets penalized. That's his problem. So it's going to be one of those things where these guys just have to adjust the rules and play by the rules and and let everything else figure itself out, and it should be just fine. All right. And, you know, there was a game the other night with the Florida Marlins where a pitcher struck out a batter with three pitches in 20 seconds. So, yes, speeding the game along because in 20 seconds, I don't think Nomar Garcia-Paro was done fixing the Velcro on his hand straps. Oh, my God. He, you know, would he have, like, three sets of gloves, too? He had batting gloves. He had <laughs> base-stealing gloves. You know, that that part of it isn't messing around. You know, Max Scherzer, he took it one more step. Um, you know, I was watching a game he was in the other day. He tried to figure out how he can give him a competitive advantage and tried to put that into play during the game. And that's what people have to do that's what pitchers have to do that's what batters have to do you know if a pitcher knows he can work fast that gives him advantage over the hitter the hitters you know he's trying to calculate what's going to happen where's the next pitch coming from well if you're pitching faster you give the batter less time to figure out if it's going to be a breaking ball or a you know a slider or whatever's coming in so um i think it's i think it's been good for the game i'm, I'm not i don't have a problem with it Nope. And, you know, I think it was Scherzer, too, who was trying to get in the head of a batter. I might have the, I might have it wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was him. He was so quick to getting ready, and the batter was so quick in the box. He had like 10 or 12 seconds left, so he just stared at the batter for eight seconds, and it seemed like an eternity. And then he blew the pitch by him because the batter didn't want to call timeout, didn't want to get in trouble. So, you know, now these guys are just messing with each other. <laughs> yeah, but I, that's fine. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Ed, so if people want to follow along with all your work, again, it's tcpalm.com and floridatoday.com where you have unique fishing reports each week. And if they want to follow you on Twitter, where can they look for you? It's um, on Twitter and Instagram. It's the same handle. It's at tcpalmekiller. Um, and so we, we regularly post our content there. And 
if we're you know doing something visual it's on instagram too so um yeah just check us out there you got any fun tiktoks for us <laughs> no tiktoks we're not on tiktok and we're not on snapchat so if you want a ed killer free zone go to those two social media sites <laughs> All right, Ed, it's always a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on, dropping all your knowledge on us. And we'll have you back again in a couple of months because I love to check in with you and find out what's going on here in our beautiful state of Florida. And we have to keep fighting for it because, you know, it is definitely worth fighting for. Thanks for having me again, Tim. Appreciate it. All right, no problem. And that's going to do it for this episode of the State of Florida Sports Podcast. I'm Tim Walters. And to quote legendary environmental rights pioneer Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, You can't conserve what you haven't got. Well said, Marjorie. Let's fight for what we still have. And if we do it together, maybe we can actually save something along the way. Thanks for listening and join us again next time. (laughs) 